So, part two of John's Midwest goodbye. Uh, if you remember last week, we had the beginning of John's Midwest goodbye, that John just doesn't know how to say goodbye. Uh, he doesn't know how to end his gospel. Uh, last week, we were probably standing in the doorway for that conversation that lasts anywhere from five to 45 minutes. Um, we heard the story of Jesus showing up at the lakeshore, that the disciples, despite everything, despite the appearances of Jesus behind the locked doors, the place where they're afraid, uh, despite their, his showing up for Thomas and his doubts, these disciples have returned back to the old way of life, back to normal. They've gone fishing once again on the Sea of Galilee. And that's where the risen and living Jesus shows up at that boundary between the old world, that return back to normal, and that new world that is brought about by his resurrection. That that new age of God, of love and justice and mercy and goodness, the evidence of that new world is found as disciples leave behind the boats and meet Christ. It's found in those acts of love and justice and mercy. And so, of course, the story continues this morning. Now we're maybe in the driveway with the car door open as we continue the wonderful eight-layer dip that is the Midwest goodbye. Um, And of course, if the disciples are fishing, there's going to be a miraculous catch of fish if Jesus shows up. And John tells us that there were 153 of them. I don't know why the specificity. It seems so irrelevant, right? Last week you said you didn't like, why was Peter naked and fishing and he puts his clothes on to go and swim? Like that's a, These details that John includes, I kind of wonder a little bit about. Uh, there's 153 fish, and so on the beach there's this charcoal fire that is built, and there is this picnic between Jesus and his disciples. Uh, that the Last Supper is not recorded in the Gospel of John, but we get this final meal with his disciples on the beach, this kind of beautiful image that as the sun is rising, gathered around a charcoal fire and sharing a meal with Jesus. Uh, An image that we can sit with for just a moment, I think. Um, And of course, there on the beach is Simon Peter. And as he looks at that charcoal fire, its heat now soft, the smell of smoke filling the air, I wonder if he's brought back to another charcoal fire. That charcoal fire that he set around in the courtyard of the high priest on that night that Jesus was betrayed. That night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus and his disciples had gathered together in the upper room and they had, were, were eating together a Passover meal with Jesus. And, and Jesus seemed a little more stressed out than usual. Uh, he was talking a little bit strangely at dinner, talking about how the bread is his body and the, the cup is his blood. And And Peter is there watching as there's this kind of intense exchange between Judas and and Jesus. And that shouldn't be unexpected. Judas handled the money, and money always creates intense conversations, doesn't it? But they're watching this, and, and then during the meal, Jesus looks at all the rest of his disciples and says, all of you tonight are going to abandon me. And you can imagine the sort of hurt on the faces of these other disciples. Doesn't Jesus know us at all? But then Peter, who so often speaks up on behalf of everybody else, says, Jesus, even if I have to die with you, I would never deny that I know you. He's posturing himself. But Jesus looks at him and says, Tonight, before the rooster crows three times, you are going to deny three times that you know me. And so after this dinner that ends so poorly is over, Jesus and his disciples go out to Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane, and 
Peter, James, and John, the sort of inner circle of this group of disciples, are given the privilege of going a little bit further with Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane before he stops them and he goes off to pray by himself. And they hear Jesus. They can barely make out his prayer, but he sounds distressed. And they want to hear what he's saying, but their eyes are heavy with sleep. It's late at night. They had a lot of wine at dinner. They fall asleep there in the garden as Jesus prays. And they're rudely awoken as Jesus comes back and says, couldn't you stay awake with me for just a little while while I pray? Keep watch. But no sooner does Jesus return to go back and pray some more, the disciples fall asleep yet again. And then they're finally awoken for the last time, and Jesus says, time to get up, my betrayer is coming. And they see the mob coming towards Jesus. They see the the torches, they hear the footfall, and with that mob is one of their own, Judas, who walks up and kisses Jesus on the cheek, and then the mob descends on Jesus and begins to bind his hands to arrest him. And everybody runs away, but not Peter. Peter thinks that Jesus needs a savior in this moment, so he grabs the sword hiding beneath his robes, and he reaches for the person, the closest person he can find, and strikes off the ear of the, of the uh, servant of the high priest, a man named Malchus. It's a moment of chaos. But then that voice that calmed the chaos on the sea calms this moment of chaos too. It says, Peter, put your sword away. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. And then Peter runs away. But not away, away. Just far enough so that he can get some distance so he can follow this mob as they take Jesus back to the temple. And he situates himself in the courtyard of the high priest with all the other servants and soldiers around a charcoal fire. And there around that charcoal fire, one of the servants asks Peter, are you one of Jesus' disciples? Which is slightly different than what we find in the other three Gospels, the question the servant asks. In the other three Gospels, they ask, do you know Jesus? And maybe that seems like a much to do about nothing, but it's a big difference, I think. Do you know Jesus? Lots of people know Jesus. They know of him, they know about him. Are you one of his disciples? Are you one of his followers? One who has staked your life on him, trying to emulate his life in your own? And of course, Peter's answer is, no, I am not one of his disciples. And again, another servant asks, and again, his response is no. And then when a soldier asks him one final time, are you one of Jesus' disciples? Again, he says, no. And then the rooster crows, three times, and Peter realizes what has happened. And the other gospel accounts depict Peter running away, weeping and mourning over what he has done. Peter has really blown it here, right? Peter, this disciple who likes to posture himself and say that no matter what happens, Jesus, I'm going to go all the way to the cross with you if necessary. And yet, he fails in this moment. I said before that there's always this gap between who we imagine ourselves to be, who we idealize ourselves to be, and who we are in reality. And when that gap shows up, that can be incredibly painful. And so they're sitting beside yet another charcoal fire with Jesus. I wonder if Peter is brought back to this moment, this moment of his greatest failure, this moment where he really didn't do what he expected to do? Is Peter defining himself by this one painful memory, this one moment in time? 
In the uh, memoir of the actress Viola Davis, she talks about a, a time when she was on the, the set of a film with Will Smith, and Will Smith looked at her and said, Viola Davis, who are you? And she was really offended by this question. Who am I? I know who I am. He says, no, but who are you? And she was really frustrated. She says, what does that mean? And Will Smith said, listen, he said, I am always going to be the 15-year-old kid whose girlfriend broke up with him. That's me. That's who I am. So who are you? And Davis was quiet for a moment. Then the memory hit her and she blurted out. She said, I am always the eight-year-old girl in third grade running away from a group of boys who would chase me every day after school because they hated me because I was black. This one painful memory, she said, the memories are sort of internal. They live there and they can be sources of joy, but also sources of heartache. That she is defining herself by this one moment. Here she was, this, this actress known for her professionalism, known for her awards. She says, even Oprah knew who I was. And yet, all of those miles away, all of that time away from that one moment, I was still that little eight-year-old girl running away. A sort of shame that they made her feel. That feeling of being unworthy and unloved, she says, even by God. I think that this is where Peter is in the story. Sitting beside the charcoal fire, this one painful memory, this one moment in time, defining who he is, allowing it to define who he is. That, that Peter is living in this place of shame. And shame is an incredibly toxic emotion. We often conflate guilt and shame as the same thing. But guilt is really this, this feeling remorse for something that we've done wrong and then taking the steps, the necessary steps to correct that. It keeps it external to ourselves. But what shame is, is shame is this experience of taking the wrongs that we've done or something, or something that someone else has done to us and internalizing them and saying that I'm wrong, I'm bad. So in my own life, when Heather and I argue, which never happens, it's just a hypothetical. Um, <laughs> right? When Heather and I argue or when I lose my temper at my kids, which also never happens, I can feel guilt, I can feel remorse and try and make steps to correct it, but shame would then be me internalizing and saying, well, I am not a good husband, I am not a good father. That shame is that experience of, of allowing ourselves to feel unworthy or someone else making us feel uh, unworthy. And shame can be incredibly painful because it makes us feel less than we actually are. And I think in my own experiences, one of the things that I've learned is that Christianity can often be an a very painful source of shame. Uh, that Christianity, one of the big, I mean, the big overarching story that we have is that we have sin, that we have something that separates us from God. And we gather together every week, not in this service, but in the second one, we, we confess our sins together before God and neighbor. And uh, what I hope we understand is that we all do things that are wrong, but we should never be internalizing those things and saying that that is who we are as people, that we are miserable, worthless sinners. Um, I think we have to contend with that. I think Christianity has to always kind of walk this sort of tightrope between guilt, understanding that we all do things that are wrong, that we need to make, take the necessary steps to amend those things, and this experience of shame, that we are wrong, that there's something wrong with us. And I think even in the Presbyterian tradition, we have to be careful of that because that's part of our historical lineage. The, the father of Presbyterianism, a man named John Calvin, 
who was so wonderfully severe all the time. I had a seminary professor who, who bet us and challenged us to go find a picture of a smiling John Calvin. Um, there is not one. Um, it's a safe bet to make if you want to challenge somebody to do that. You know, Calvin came up with this idea of total depravity, that we are totally depraved. There's nothing good within us apart from God. And we have to, I think, be careful of that legacy. That shame, this experience of, of feeling ourselves to be unworthy or unloved, there's a lot of ways that that can happen. There's a lot of things that people can do to us. It's not even necessarily the things that we've done wrong. It's the way that people have treated us. It's those experiences in our lives. You know, this wasn't in my manuscript. I hesitated to share this story. I think why that story from Viola Davis is so meaningful to me is uh, it makes me think about who am I? Who is that person that I still am? And, I, and I've shared with you all before that high school was an incredibly lonely time for me. Um, I sat alone a lot in the lunchroom at the table. And I think even all of these years later, uh, I'm still that young 14, 15, 16-year-old sitting alone at the lunch table, um, feeling unloved, unworthy. Um, all of these years later, I, I realized this recently. I was um, waiting for, I was going out with Garrett, my friend Garrett from Fort Street, and I was waiting for him to show up, and I was early, and I was there for 10 minutes by myself, and I realized I'm still that high school kid sitting there feeling unloved, unworthy. That shame is an incredibly toxic thing. Um, some, of the, some psychologists call shame the swampland of the soul. And I think that this is where Peter is this morning. That Peter, sitting beside the charcoal fire, is experiencing and feeling himself to be unloved and unworthy, unworthy of being Jesus' disciple. It maybe helps us to understand why Peter, after uh, everything that's happened post-Easter, has gone back to his old way of life. That he thinks that this is what is left for him. It is this experience of shame. The thing I love about John's stories, these post-Easter stories, is that Jesus keeps on showing up for people, showing up for people in that swamp land of their soul. When I was in the process of being uh, ordained, being called to my first congregation, I had to meet with the presbytery representatives to make sure that my theology was correct and everything else. So, um, One of the questions one of the elders asked me was, um, what does Jesus save us from? And I thought that was a ridiculous question. That is ridiculous in scope. What does Jesus save us from? Well, it depends on who you ask, right? But one of the things that I've learned, one of the things that I truly believe in my own heart is that what Jesus saves us from is shame. That experience, that feeling of being unworthy and unloved. And this is where Jesus shows up for Peter, this feeling of being unworthy and unloved, and he reminds him that he is indeed worthy and loved. Uh, Brendan Manning, who wrote one of my favorite books of all time called The Ragamuffin Gospel, if you haven't read it, I would highly recommend it. He wrote The Ragamuffin Gospel. He says this, he says, Do you believe that the God of Jesus loves you beyond worthiness and unworthiness, beyond fidelity and infidelity, that he loves you in the morning sun and in the evening rain, that he loves you when your intellect denies it, your emotions refuse it, your whole being rejects it? Do you believe that God loves you without condition or reservation and loves you in this moment as you are and not as you should be? I think this is what Jesus is saying to Peter this morning, sitting there at the charcoal fire, sitting beside the swamp, sitting in that swampland of the soul. Do you believe that I love you? I think that's what that question is. Do you love me, Peter? So who are you defining yourself as? 
Do you believe that I love you when I first called you? Do you believe that I loved you even when you denied me three times? Do you believe when I, that I loved you even when you're posturing yourself as the best disciple there is? And even in those moments of your greatest failure. I think that Jesus sits beside the charcoal fire with each and every one of us and asks us, do you believe that I love you? That I love you in your greatest joys and in your greatest heartaches. That I love you in those moments where you feel unworthy and unloved. I, I love you no matter what. I have come to believe this, and I am convinced of this, that Jesus saves us from those experiences of shame. And that if faith and religion is telling us something else, then it is not the faith of Jesus Christ. So here's what I want to do to end. And here's where this chair comes in. I want us to take a few moments just to simply uh, reflect, to be, to imagine ourselves sitting beside the charcoal fire with Jesus. And this is a chance for you to use your imaginations um, to pray. And I don't want you to worry too much about things being true or not true. But I want you to imagine that Jesus is speaking to you and what is he saying? Again, don't, let it, don't worry about it being objectively true or not. Well, is Jesus actually saying this? Just imagine what Jesus might say to you. So let's sit up a little bit, have our feet on the floor, put our hands in a comfortable position. I'll, I'll keep the time. You don't have to worry about the time, um, which maybe is freeing for some of us. I want you to take a few deep breaths Center yourself into this moment. Now, I want you to imagine that you're sitting on the beach at the Sea of Galilee. If you listen carefully, you can hear the waves crashing on the shore. You're sitting around the charcoal fire. The embers are softly lit and the hues of orange and yellow are there. You can smell the fire. You can feel the warmth. And as you look up, there is Jesus sitting across from you. Imagine how he looks, how he's sitting, the expression on his face, the look in his eyes. Now imagine you are conversing together. And what is he saying to you? Take a few moments to imagine what he has to say to you. Let's pray. Risen and living Jesus, we thank you for meeting us here today, for sitting at the charcoal fire with us and reminding us of your love. Whatever you have said to each and every one of us, may it take root in our hearts and may we become more and more convinced that you indeed love us. Amen.